Okay, you can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. We're going through it a lot quicker just hitting the high points, aren't we? Covering several chapters at a time. Now we could. Yeah. Yeah, we're just, we're just going through tracing a theme as we're going through this and looking at it and, and trying to see the different characters and their relationship with God and how they, uh, how they come to Christ or come to, come to God, I guess we should say, by faith and how it's always been by faith. And uh, as I've said several times through this study, people get confused and they think that somehow in the Old Testament that people were saved by their works. And I think a lot of the reason for that is because Moses has the law, and they look at the law as being uh, a standard or as being a bar that if people can keep the law, then somehow that's how they are saved. But there's not anyone in the scriptures, not anyone in human history outside of Jesus Christ that ever kept the law. And so no one's ever been saved by the law. No one's ever been saved by their works. And within the law, there was provision made for atonement for their sin. And there was an assumption made when the law was given that people wouldn't keep it. And that was the purpose of the law. And I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself because in the study, we're going to end up doing uh, a bit of a, a study or an overview, at least on the law. And uh, in the law, as I said, there it contains... Um, provision for whenever they broke the law, ways to be atoned for. And those atonements offer, are, they were made up of, I guess, uh, a substitute being offered in their place. And so whenever they sinned, they had to offer up the blood of an animal because the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so all the way through the Old Testament, it was pointing to Christ. It was leading us to Christ. It was showing us the point here that men must come to God by faith and that their works are never going to do it. They're going to have to trust in uh, the atonement that God provides, that only he provides. And so we saw that with Adam and Eve, with the coats of skin that they were clothed with, uh, with Cain offering up a more perfect, or not Cain, Abel offering up a more perfect sacrifice. Uh, we saw uh, in the days of Noah where he was... Uh, willing to believe God that he was going to send judgment, that judgment was coming, and he was willing to take up God on his offer of a way to escape the judgment, and that was the ark, a picture of Christ, and if any man be in Christ, right? This is Noah's in the ark. And so we kept going all the way through this, and we've got to Abraham, and then we went to Isaac, and last week we were with Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. They shared the same womb. They were raised in the same household uh, with the same parents, a very similar upbringing. Uh, unfortunately, one of them was favored by the father. The other one was favored by the mother. And we know that favorite children never do produce good fruit. Uh, whenever parents show favoritism, it brings problems. We're going to see that even more so in Joseph's life as we look at him tonight. But anyway, going back to Jacob and Esau, very familiar passage of scripture says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And people have taken that and said that God chooses favorites, that somehow God has chosen some over others and some he has chosen to salvation and some to damnation. And it's as if uh, Jacob and Esau were predestined, they were pre-chosen, that Jacob was going to excel and be saved and Esau was going to fail and reject and be damned. And somehow that was God's choosing or God's planning. But we know through, through the rest of the scripture, the Bible says that no scripture is of private interpretation. That doesn't mean that you can't uh, interpret it yourself. It means that you can't isolate it from the rest of scripture. When it says it's of no private interpretation, I can't just pick out one verse out of the Bible and ignore the rest of the Bible. And as we look at the rest of the Bible, the Bible tells us that uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Just that verse in and of itself tells us 
that God hasn't limited his atonement to only a certain few, but instead he loves the world and he died for whosoever, whosoever will, right? And not only that, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, so God hasn't willed any man to damnation. He wants every man to be saved. And there's a ton of other scriptures that we could go to that tells us that whenever it says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, it doesn't mean that God has chosen some for salvation and he's rejected others. But instead, we saw last week that God foreknows, he knows ahead of time, excuse me, how people are going to respond to him. He knows ahead of time people's hearts and their character. He doesn't make them that way. He doesn't uh, predetermine. He doesn't force them and force their will, but instead he knows their hearts and their minds from before they were ever even created. Uh, the prophet said that before I was formed in my mother's womb, he knew me. And whenever we see it that way, uh, it's not that God's sovereignty is under attack for a man having a free will. It's that God's knowledge and wisdom so far exceeds our understanding that God is able to look down through uh, generations of time and see you in the future and know, even though you have a free will, how you're going to decide and the choices you're going to make and what's going to end up happening. And he is able to work around your will. He's able to work around your choosing and he's able to cause his will to be done while you still have a will of your own. And so that's pretty big, isn't it? And so it's not that we ever infringe on God's sovereignty or on his will. It's that God is so great and he is so powerful that he is so mighty and wise that he is able to still carry out his will without us being a threat to it. Okay, without us having a free will being a threat to it. So we saw that last week with uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was uh, more sensitive, more tender, uh, leaned more toward the things of God. Uh, Esau couldn't see past his belly. I'm not saying he was fat, but I mean, he had carnal appetites, carnal desires. He didn't care about the things of God. And so whenever God chose Jacob before they were ever even born, it was because he knew of what Jacob would become and what Esau would become. And not just Jacob and Esau, but Jacob's people and Esau's people. And we see that playing out down throughout Scripture. And so that also means that God knows the decisions that we're going to make, that he doesn't cause them. Foreknowing is not the same as forecausing, right? He knows it ahead of time, but he still allows us to make our own decisions. And so the gospel is presented to all men. We are to go out and preach the gospel to every creature. And not everyone is going to respond favorably to it. Not everyone is going to be saved. Not even both people out of the same house. Siblings can respond in opposite ways, just like Jacob and Esau did, right? And so anyway, I can't go through and reteach all of that or review for too long, but today what we're going to be looking into is the story of Joseph. And so Jacob uh, married, uh, let's see, he married Leah because he got tricked, and he married uh, Rachel because she was the one that he wanted. And then Rachel couldn't have children, so she gave him her handmaid to be his concubine, wife number three. And then Leah had quit having children, so she gave her handmaid, concubine, wife number four. And so Jacob had four different wives. Was that God's will? No. And so people try to justify uh, polygamy and uh, all of this sexual immorality because they find it in Scripture. God doesn't endorse it. He records it because it's a fact of history, but he doesn't endorse it. Instead, he records in his word the bad consequences of the decisions. Could you imagine the chaos that went on in Jacob's house? It was a constant baby-making competition, wasn't it? That's what was going on. You start reading it, it's really sad. And Rachel was a favor, but because she couldn't, because she couldn't have children, uh, she felt like a lesser wife. And so Leah held it over her head that she was able to bear children, and Rachel wasn't. Rachel schemed and connived and um, found a way to have uh, the baby by proxy. And then she finally had her own baby, and it was back and forth and chaos and 
It's a wonder one of them didn't kill the other. Right? And so, more than likely, uh, Jacob enjoyed being a shepherd. He probably spent lots of time with his sheep because it wasn't nice whenever he came home. It would have been a rough situation. So God does record the consequences of polygamy. Uh, we look at others such as Solomon and David. David had children killing one another as a result of polygamy. And polygamy is not our, uh, our topic for tonight. But I'm just, I'm just saying this is where Joseph comes from. These are saved individuals by our Old Testament sense. These are people who believed God and it was counted to them for righteousness. And they were making huge mistakes and they were doing things that was not pleasing to God. But yet they were still his children, right? So further proof that it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. But it's according to his mercy that he saves us. And so anyway, whenever we look at Jacob's family, we find that he has 12 children with these four different women. And uh, there is a battle that goes on back and forth between the children. Some of them were favorites once again. And because of this, we're going to find out that they start bickering between one another. They're competing with one another. They are getting away from... Uh, the God of their father, really, because of all the things that are going on. And it does create chaos. One thing that we're going to find, we're going to be focusing, as I said, on Joseph. And he is one of the best and most complete types of Christ that we find in Scripture. I uh, said that Isaac was probably your second one, right? But Joseph is probably your first. But let's go ahead and read in Genesis chapter number 37. And I'll read uh, several verses here just to get it started. And then I'll give somewhat of a summary of the rest of his story. Okay, because you definitely don't want, want me reading like five, six chapters, do you? No, not tonight. Okay. Uh, Genesis 37, verse number one. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood around about, and made obeisance to my sheaf. Which means they bowed down to his. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he said, excuse me, and he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come and bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. And he said unto him, Go, I pray thee, and see whether it be well with thy brethren and well with the flocks. And bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron. And he came to Shechem, and a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in a field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren, and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. 
Come now, therefore, let us slay him and cast him into some pit, and we will say some evil beast has devoured him, and we will see what what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into the pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many collars that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Joseph said to his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come let us, uh, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and, not to, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. Okay, we'll go ahead and stop there. But what we've read so far is that uh, Jacob had all of these sons by these different wives, and he preferred Joseph because he was the son of Rachel, and she bore him whenever uh, whenever Jacob was old. It was a child of his old age, it says. And so he would have been his second to last born because Benjamin came after him. So he was the he was the baby. And the baby was the favorite, right? I'm getting grunting over here. So the baby was the favorite. And as time went on, did you notice how many times it says they hated him that much more? Over and over as I was reading that, things would happen, and it piled hatred on over and over and over, more and more and more, that everything that came up, they hated him that much more. He went out and uh, he observed the wickedness that his brothers was doing and came back and said, Dad, whenever the boys get away from you, they're getting into all kinds of wickedness and lewdness. And so some might call him a tattletale, right? And so he was there telling about the sins of his brethren. But we also see something great in that, in that he was concerned for the trouble that they were getting into because they were his brother. They were the children of his father, and they were getting into things they ought not to be getting into. And so there was a uh, there was the fact that he didn't like the sin and the wickedness that they were getting into. I don't think he was doing it just to get them in trouble. We can't really dig too much into that. But in this situation, he was concerned for the sake of righteousness, wasn't he? On top of that, he received a coat of many collars from his father. Now, this would have been a slap in the face of his, his brothers, wouldn't it? Look at this. I'm daddy's favorite. I got a royal robe, and the rest of you all got your little goat's hair suits, right? And so anyway, they saw his clothing and the way the father doted upon him and everything. They hated him more. He started having these dreams where his brethren and even his parents would bow down to him, and they hated him that much more. And so it says not only did they hate him, but they began to envy him. There was jealousy going on. And so as time went by, going past what we see here, he's told to go out and check on his brothers to see how they're doing. He goes out, and as he's still coming, they raise up their eyes, they see him coming, and they devise a plan. First, they want to kill him, but then Reuben steps in, and he says, let's not kill him. Let's just put him in a pit. He planned on uh, delivering him out of their hands. But in the meantime, the Ishmaelites, the children of Ishmael, right? Their cousins came by and said, hey, we're going down into Egypt, and we're merchantmen, we're selling stuff. And so they sell their brother to the Ishmaelites as a slave. They said, what good is it for us just to kill him and his blood be on our hands? We can profit off of this and let somebody else do the dirty deeds to him. And so he was sold into Egypt. And whenever he got down to Egypt, where did he end up at? Anyone remember? He was in Potiphar's house. And he did such a good job down in Potiphar's house that Potiphar put everything in his hands. It says in one place that Potiphar didn't even know uh, anything that was going on in his house except for the food that he was eating, that Joseph was in charge of it all because he was faithful in all that he did, and God's hand was on him and blessed everything he touched. He had the Midas touch, so to speak. And so Potiphar put everything into his hand. 
But Potiphar's wife uh, started taking notice of jo- uh, of Joseph. And so she tried to get him to uh, come in and lay with her, and he refused. And it says that she came to him day by day. It was a constant temptation, and she continued coming to him, and he refused. He said that it was uh, not just a sin against themselves, it was a sin against uh, Potiphar, and it was a sin against God. And so he refused to do it. She saw that he was a man of integrity, and there was no way that he was ever going to give in. And so the one day she catches hold of his clothing while he's inside, and uh, he runs away. It's a good thing to do with sin, right? You keep telling it no, and you get away from it as quick as you can. So he ran away. He left his coat behind, and she said that he tried to force himself upon her. And so Potiphar responded by putting him in jail. Now, I've got a question of opinion for you. Did Potiphar believe Joseph or his wife? Or you think he believed Joseph? How did Joseph end up in jail? Let me ask this. If he believed his wife that Joseph tried to force himself on her, what would have happened to Joseph? He'd been killed. And so it's a matter of my opinion that he didn't believe his wife. He believed Joseph. So he didn't have him killed. He had him imprisoned, right? He knew the charges was bogus because Joseph was a man of integrity, right? But he was also a married man. And he knew that if his wife made these accusations and she didn't punish him in any way, then he was going to have greater punishment at home, right? And so she forced his hand. He had to do something. He didn't want to kill Joseph. He puts him in jail. And within a short amount of time, uh, Joseph is now the favorite of the jailer. And the jailer basically offloads his duties on Joseph and says, Joseph is so good and so trustworthy that I can just come to work and twiddle my fingers or twiddle my thumbs Play games on the computer. No, they didn't have those back then. And um, let Joseph do all the work. And so Joseph, being a prisoner, was in charge of the jail. And apparently things were going well. Morality was at its highest. They didn't have any escape attempts or anything going on. Joseph was doing a good job. And throughout the process of time while he was in jail, uh, Pharaoh gets unhappy with a couple of his servants, throws them in jail, And after a while of being in there, Joseph is concerned about the well-being of the other people that are around him. He's not sulking and hiding and grunting and growling in his situation. But instead, he looks at them and he says, what's wrong? Why are you so sad? Well, they were in prison. But they said, we have had dreams and don't have anyone to interpret them. And Joseph says the interpretations of dreams belong to the Lord. They tell him the dreams. He tells them the interpretation of them. And he says, remember me whenever you get out of here, because one of them was going to be restored, the other one was going to be killed. And so he says, the one that's going to be restored, remember me. And he forgot him. Right? Joseph spent two more years in that situation. And finally, Pharaoh has a dream. And suddenly, the servant remembers Joseph. There's no one that can interpret the dream, and the servant says, I remember whenever I was in jail, I met a guy that could interpret dreams. I bet he can help you. And so finally, they bring Joseph out. He gets all cleaned up and dressed and ready. He interprets Pharaoh's dream, tells him there's going to be a famine. You need to put someone in charge of preparations for the famine. And Pharaoh says, you're it. Basically makes him second in charge, the prime minister of all of Egypt, right? And so how far he has come from being the detested brother, the sold slave, right, to now ruling over Egypt. He puts away plenty of food during the years of plenty. And when the famine comes, he is dealing out bread to people from all different nations. And who should arrive but the brothers who sold him. And throughout a process of time, he realizes his brother's regretted what they did, had a change of heart to an extent, puts them to the test, and finally reveals himself, forgives his brothers, and brings them down to Egypt to weather out the rest of the famine with him in Egypt. 
Okay? And so that is the story of Joseph in a nutshell. And what we're going to see is that Joseph, in his life and the way that things happen to him, has a lot in common with Jesus. But we're going to look tonight, there's three different things that I want to look at, three different uh, perspectives, I guess we could say, uh, that we can see in this. And so I want to compare Joseph and Christ, and I want to look at how Joseph and his brothers depict salvation, and I want to look at Joseph's life and uh, some lessons we can learn from it as Christians. So three different things I want to look at tonight. Think we can do that quickly? Not quickly, again. So what are some ways that Joseph and Jesus would be alike? Okay, similar in character, right? What are some occurrences from their life that were similar? Okay, both of them were sold. What was significant about the price they were sold for? Joseph was 20. But both of them, it was the price of a slave. Now, there's the principle of inflation. Apparently, there was uh, imp- the, the cost of a slave went up by a third between Joseph and Jesus. Okay? Went from 20 pieces to 30 pieces. But both was considered the cost, the value of a slave at that time, right? What are some other things that are similar about them? I want to make you all think a little bit. Okay, they were hated by who? Their by their brethren, yeah. They were hated of their brethren. What else we got? Very good. That's what I might even have written down. They were stripped of their garments. Come on, thanks. We're doing the best we can. Pop quiz. They were beloved of the Father. Okay. Found that both hated sin. That's one reason I was bringing out with Joseph and him telling the Father about the sins of his brother, right? They hated sin. They obeyed their Father. They did always that which pleased the Father. Uh, They were blessed of the Father. Right? And they spoke the truth and was hated for it. Remember as Joseph was telling his dreams and they the ones that he told it to offended him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, right? Another similarity. So he's hated by their brethren as a result. Y'all come up with anything else? Partial credit. Both mocked and plotted against. They were both betrayed. I said I was going to try to do this quickly, so I can't wait all night for you to think. (laughs) Okay, okay. So as you said, they were sold for the price of a slave. Both of them were falsely accused. Right? They were both imprisoned. Joseph was presumed dead while Jesus actually was dead, right? I believe Jacob says at one point in time that my son that was dead is now alive, right? And so in in Jacob's mind, Joseph did die and came back to life, right? Another thing that was interesting as I was looking at this, both of them were associated with two criminals, one which was saved and the other was not. Remember the butler and the baker? Okay. Both saved many people. They were both miraculously raised up to a position. Right? Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Joseph ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh. And so they were seated at the right hand in a place of authority. Both brought a means of salvation to the nations. 
Joseph wasn't just to Egypt, but all nations was coming looking for salvation, and they were pointed to Joseph, right? Whenever people came, they said, who do we look to? Who do we uh, seek after to find food, to find sustenance, to find salvation? And they pointed them to Joseph. Both were forgiving those who betrayed them. Okay, and if we go back a little bit, both of them went through a time of testing. Joseph with Potiphar's wife, Jesus in the wilderness with Satan. That puts a different spin on Potiphar's wife, doesn't it? The Jezebel that she was. And both were faithful men, and they kept their integrity throughout all of it. So do you see why I say that Joseph is one of the best pictures of Jesus in the Bible? In the Old Testament. And so we find so many qualities that both of them had, so many experiences that both of them went through. And so God used them both mightily. Of course, uh, Joseph in a temporal sense, Jesus in an eternal sense, right? And so we can compare the two of them and we see that he is a picture of Christ. He is a type, if you will, of Christ, showing what he was going to be like. And so for the Jews, as they were looking for their Messiah, they were looking for the conquering king, right? They weren't expecting one that was uh, falsely accused and rejected and beaten and imprisoned and crucified and raised the third day. They weren't expecting that, were they? But time after time, God has spelled it out in Scripture and showed them that's what he had in mind. So I said the second thing that we're looking at. See, I'm moving in quickly, right? You didn't think I'd do it so quickly. So we're looking at this, and I, I've titled the, the uh, series that we're doing, Jesus B.C. So what does this have to do with salvation? We see how it's a picture of Jesus, but how is it a picture of salvation here? We can't necessarily point in Joseph's life and say this is when he believed. This is when he was put to the test, and this is when he expressed faith, and this is the time that he was saved to the extent that you can some of the others like Abraham or Noah or Adam, right? You can't really see that. But remember, he's a type of Christ. So what we can find in this is that he pictures salvation with his brothers because his brothers from the beginning rejected him and sinned against him, right? Rejected and refused, sinned against. And is that not what mankind does with Christ and with God? And man from the beginning has sought a a way to be independent of God, to get rid of him, get rid of the accountability, to try to live without him, to put them out of their life, right? And this is what they tried to do, what Joseph's brothers tried to do to him. But God used that uh, situation that Joseph went through, that rejection and the following time of testing and trial and difficulties that he went through, he used that to elevate him to a position of authority and a place of salvation, right? And so Jesus came and he was rejected of his own. It says he came to his own and his own received him not, right? But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And so with Joseph, he was rejected he went through all of the suffering and trials that he did to bring an ultimate victory that would bring salvation to the ones who rejected him. Uh, we find that uh, with the brothers, the time of their death was looming and they were unable to rescue themselves. They were unable to save themselves, right? For them, it was a famine. And they said, if we stay here, we're going to starve. We need to look for someone who can save us, someone who can rescue us, because we can't do it ourselves. And so their search for someone who could save them, who could sustain their lives, led them to Joseph, right? And so they had to turn to the one that they once rejected for salvation. That's a picture of repentance, right? They had a change of mind. The one that I once rejected, now I accept, now I need. Whenever they stood before Joseph, 
they stood before him guilty. They stood before him ashamed. They stood before him in fear, right? Because for a person to get saved, they must come face to face to the idea that they have sinned against a holy and just God and that their sins have earned them, I guess you could say. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so we must come face to face with the idea that we are deserving of punishment, that we have sinned against our God and our creative creator. We have rejected him. We have trampled upon him. And whenever we stand before him, we realize that we are guilty before him. And with that, we should, we should be fearful, right? We come before God and we realize, I have offended a holy God. I have sinned against him. I am worthy of death. We find that they own their sin. As he put them through these tests, these trials that they went through, they confessed. They didn't realize that he could hear, right? And God is always listening. He's aware of our heart. He's aware of the things that's going on in our minds, right? But anyway, he was listening and he was hearing the conversations that they were having. And they said, the reason why we are going through this now, the reason we are guilty and we are facing death is because of what we have done to Joseph. Because we have sinned against him, we are at this place of death. We were wrong. We were sinful. And so whenever he is revealed before them, they must confess their sins and they must seek his forgiveness. Are you seeing the parallels here? And so they stand before Joseph, they seek his forgiveness, and he pardons them completely, not based on any merit of their own, not because they have done penance, not because they have made amends, not because they have paid restitution, not because they had anything whatsoever to offer him, but they are forgiven solely based on the character and compassion of Joseph. Was there any reason Joseph should have forgiven them? Did they deserve? Were they worthy of his forgiveness? If your siblings had done that to you, would you forgive them? Joseph had the ability at that very moment, all he had to do was speak the word. He may not have even had to speak. He may have just been able to make a sign or snap his fingers, and all of his brothers would be imprisoned permanently or killed or tortured or anything he wanted done to them. And they would have had to admit that he was just in doing so, right? And so for a holy God, for Jesus Christ, who has loved us and has given himself for us, for us to stand before him and refuse and reject him still after all he's done, is there any man who can argue that he is unjust? Or is there any man who can say that we deserve better than eternal hell whenever we stand before him and we reject him in spite of all that he's done? But whenever we get back to Joseph and his brothers, it's not by anything that they have done. It's not by their good works, not by restitution, none of those things. But because of Joseph's character, because of who Joseph is, he forgives them freely. He puts no conditions on it. He doesn't reserve anything back. He doesn't hold anything back. Instead, throughout the entire exchange, what you see is he is weeping. He is mourning. He is toward them, loving toward them. How many times does he have to excuse himself to go and weep in the next room, get himself composed and come back because of how happy he is that they are there because of how much he loves them and how much he has missed them and how much he wants to be restored to them the whole time they're in his presence. That tells us a lot about the character of God as well, right? And so they own their sin. They ask for forgiveness. They received it freely without any qualifications because of Joseph's goodness and not because of theirs. Then something interesting, after he reveals himself to them, he sends them back to their father's house 
to bring more people with them to the place that he has prepared for them. He goes out and separates Goshen aside, makes a land for them, provides for all their needs, and he says, go and get as many people as you can and bring them. And once again, comparing that to salvation, after we have been forgiven, after we have been saved, he is preparing a place for us, and he sends us to invite others to bring whosoever will to him, right? Something else interesting in this, as they are leaving, if you look at chapter 45, this is something that's always caught me maybe a little bit funny. His brothers are like they've just seen a ghost. They assume that Joseph was dead. He reveals himself to them. They're afraid he's going to kill them because he's the most powerful man in Egypt. And instead he forgives them and says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you and your families. Go and get them and bring them here. And in chapter 45, down in verse number 24, at the end of the verse, he says, See that you fall not out by the way. But where does that fit in with all of this? We are the brethren down here gathering up others to take to the land that Joseph has prepared. And we're going to have differences we're going to probably have a lot to discuss and talk about. Can you imagine the brothers as they're going and Reuben's blaming Judah and Judah's blaming the others and back and forth? And they could have a quite serious fight about this, couldn't they? And he says, see that you don't fall out by the way. And I believe that's good advice for us as Christians as we're awaiting our time that we go back, awaiting the time that we see Christ and go to the place that he's prepared it seems like so many people are falling out with one another, by the way. Christians are so apt to fight with one another, and there's divisions and disunity and everything else. And it's compromising the family of Christ. And so it says, see that you fall not out, by the way. And so Joseph blessed them, and he cared for them. And now the last one that I see in this, and you tell me if you all think of anything else, is in chapter number 50, the last chapter of Genesis. There's an important event that takes place. Jacob dies. Their father dies. And what is the fear of the brethren whenever the father dies? Dad's dead. He's going to kill us now. So what that tells me is that they still misunderstood or underestimated Joseph's character. They thought that his uh, forgiveness was either insufficient or was fraudulent. They thought that he was faking it or that he didn't really mean it. And that something would happen that whenever Joseph got the opportunity that he was going to repay them, that he was going to punish them for the wickedness that they had done, they didn't take him at his word that they were forgiven. And so the way that that plays in for us with salvation is how often do we as Christians think that, yeah, we got saved. Yes, the Bible says that he forgave us, but did he really forgive us? How often do we question our salvation? How often do we question his love and his acceptance? How often do we bring up all of our mistakes and all of our failures and rehash those out thinking that surely God still holds that against us? That somehow we're still still fearing divine retribution of some sort because maybe Jesus's blood wasn't sufficient. Maybe he didn't really mean it when he said forgiven. What if I'm not really saved? What if he gets tired of me? What if I sin one time too many? What if he decides to punish me instead of forgiving? Any of that kind of stuff ever go through your heads? And what we do is the same as Joseph's brother's we misunderstand or we underestimate the character of Jesus. That whenever he says it is forgiven, whenever he cried from the cross, it is finished. When it says that he cast in sin as far as the east is from the west into the depths of the sea of forgetfulness, we say yes, but. And there's no but to it. He means it. You say, well, I can't forgive like that. Well, you're not God. And that's why he is God. That's why he is good. He can forgive like that. And so Joseph reassures them and he comforts them in the fact 
that it was all done in the goodness and the provision of God and was never based on their works. He says, the things that you meant for me for evil, God meant it for good. It is according to God's plan, not your works, that you are saved. So don't ever think that I'm going to come back and I'm going to uh, bring this back up, that I'm going to dump this back on you, that I'm going to call you back into account for the account that was already settled and that was ever cleared. And so it shows us a lot about salvation. Once again, the way that he dealt with his brothers wasn't their merit. It was his character, right? It wasn't what they had done. It was what God had done. It was permanent. He wasn't going to go back on it. And if they crossed the line another time, he wasn't going to say, I rescinded my previous offer. No, they were forgiven because he is that good, right? And so when we start getting in the right perspective here and we see ourselves realizing that we rejected, we sinned against, we wronged a holy God, we deserve punishment, we deserve hell, but he has offered forgiveness. And all it requires is for us to repent, for us to have a change of mind toward him, to accept the one that we previously rejected and accept the forgiveness that he offers. That's all it takes. And then it is forgiven based on what he has done and based on who he is rather than what we are and what we have done. And so we're all the way back in the book of Genesis, all the way back in the beginning. And we see that salvation is painted and pictured the same way there as it is in the New Testament. Same way as it is today. We must come the same way to Christ as Joseph's brothers did to him. Now, the third thing I said we were going to look at, Joseph's life and some lessons for Christianity. What are some things that we can learn? If we look at Joseph as an Old Testament Christian, what are some lessons from his life that we can learn? You see any lessons? Stay away from Potiphar's wife. Yeah, snitches get stitches, right? That's what they say. You ever heard that one? Snitches get stitches. Okay. Anyway. There's several characters in the Bible that exemplify that. We see uh, Daniel's one of them. Uh, of course, Joseph's one of them. Um, Job is one of them. So that's a huge lesson from it, right? Is that God is working even when we don't realize what he's doing. And the huge lesson to that is don't give up in the hard times or you'll never see what God's working through them, right? Because imagine in Joseph's life, had he given up whenever he was sold into slavery. He got sold to the Ishmaelites. He fought them the whole way down. He got sold to Potiphar. He grumbled and complained. He fussed about it. And he was a common, ordinary slave in Potiphar's house living like any other common, ordinary slave in Potiphar's house. And he lived and he died in Potiphar's house. End of story. Right? What if there was a little bit more God on him? And he smiled through the, the long journey. He got to Potiphar's house. And he was doing a good job for Potiphar. And then he got falsely accused and put in jail. And he said, fine then, I quit. God's not watching out for me. It's one thing after another. I can't get a break. I've tried to be good. I tried to keep a smile on. I went to Potiphar's house. I was a good worker for him. I tried my best to give glory to my God, and my God has once again repaid me evil for good. 
And so here I am in prison. I'm bitter. I am angry. I'm mad. I'm finished, God. And he just quit. Piled up in the corner in prison and rotted there. Right? You see how that goes? And for us as Christians, we're tempted to do that whenever trials come. And we think this is the way that it's always going to be. You know, you get sold into slavery in Potiphar's house. You're kicking dirt, you're griping, you're grumbling and everything else. And you're saying, there's no way God can mean this for good. There's no way anything good could come out of this. And lo and behold, a few years down the road, maybe even your things get worse and now you're in the prison. And then you're forgotten about in the prison. You know how long it took from the time that he was sold into slavery to the time he stood before Pharaoh. Anyone know how long that was? Not quite. 13 years. He was 17 when he was sold into slavery. He was 30 when he stood before Potiphar. It took 13 years. How long you put up with the trial? I mean, could you count any of that 13 years as a success? going from slavery to the prison. I mean, he was being treated like a good employee by Potiphar, at least. He say, hey, well, he was doing good there. He was a slave. And then it went from bad to worse whenever he got put into prison. Say, well, he was there. He was given responsibilities. He probably had the cushiest cell. He was still in prison. He gets the break. He thinks he's going to get out and then still two more years in prison. How long do we wait on God to work in our lives? How many years are we willing to let God work? Emily's 13. Joseph was in that situation for all of Emily's life. And then after that, it was still another seven years because there were seven years of plenty, right? And then the famine started, so maybe eight years. And so it would have been... Joseph would have been about 37, 38 years old, 20, 21 years from the time that he had previously saw his brothers to the time that they stand before him, finally fulfill his dream that he had had some 20-some years earlier and bow down before him. That was 20-some years in the making. He had dreamed that dream whenever he was a teenager. He saw it fulfilled when he was nearly 40. So it would have taken from Lydia's age to my age for him to see God work this in his life. Okay? So when we look at Joseph's life and we try to bring this into a Christian perspective, Joseph throughout that entire time maintained his integrity. He lived by character. He still cared for others even when he was in a bad condition. You know, whenever we have a bad day, the last thing that we care about is what other people are going through. Isn't that right? Joseph was in prison and he looked at Pharaoh's servants and he says, what's going on? What's wrong? You don't seem like your usual self. I have been paying attention. I've been looking out for your well-being and normally you're doing better than this. And today you seem to be kind of down. Well, why do you care, Joseph? You're in prison, right? It tells a little bit about Joseph's mindset, the way that he was conducting himself, even when he was in bad condition, even whenever he was going through bad things, he was still looking out for other people, still caring about other people. And that's part of the reason why he was prospering, because he still cared for others. He was still looking out to others because usually when we're in a bad place, we turn on ourselves. We turn inwardly, I guess we could say, and have ourselves a little pity party, don't we? And so all good thoughts on this, but I just want to go through, I've got another list here for some lessons from Joseph's life and then we'll quit. First thing from Joseph's life that I have here is God loves his children. Just as 
Jacob loved Joseph, God loves us, right? And even more so. Whenever we hate sin and we love God and we proclaim the word, it's going to attract the displeasure of sinful men. We can't fault Joseph for what he was doing, can we? He raised up uh, questions or concerns whenever he saw sinfulness going on, sinful acts going on around him. He didn't want to see that going on in the lives of others, right? They're not going to react in a good way whenever we are concerned about their sin, right? He loved God. He proclaimed what God had revealed to him, the dreams that he had given. I'm not saying we're going to go out and have dreams and we need to tell everybody your dreams. You start coming to me telling me your dreams, I'm probably going to tell you you're nuts. Because if your dreams are as crazy as mine are, they're not trying to tell you the future. But Joseph's word, Joseph was telling him the future. And they were the truth, and they did come true, right? And he was hated for it. Um, we have a choice that we have to make. Could Joseph have done differently with his brothers and got along with them? Now, he didn't choose to be the favorite. He didn't choose to get preferential treatment. That wasn't his doing, was it? Now, that probably still going to cause some problems and some heartache. But could Joseph have looked the other way whenever his brothers were out getting into nonsense? Say, well, I would say something about it, but it'll make him mad. So I'll just keep quiet. Right? He could have chosen, instead of doing what his father had told him to do, he could have chosen to do what made his brothers happy. He could have even got along with them enough that they weren't willing to throw him in a pit and sell him off to Egypt, right? By compromising. But we have a decision we need to make. We have to choose whether we're going to please the Father or if we're going to uh, be loved by the world. Because the Bible tells us that to be a friend of the world is enmity with God. That we can't serve two masters. That basically the world and God are going two opposite directions. And so if we're living our lives in a way that we fit in in this world and that the people that are living according to the world's ways and that are living in sin, till they accept us and approve of us and appreciate us, if we're living in that way, we are not living in line with the things of God. And if we're living in line with the things of God, then this world is going to have a beef with us. They're not going to like it. And so we have to choose who we're going to please and who we're going to serve. Uh, we find out that faithfulness and righteous living does not necessarily deliver us from hardships. Say, but God, I have done nothing but good. I don't sin. I don't do these things and I don't do that. And I've live perfect in all these ways. I go to church and I read my Bible and I pray. So God, how are you letting this happen to me? It's a bit of a wrong perspective because faithfulness and righteous living does not necessarily keep us from hardship. Uh, God can use our proper response to trials to elevate us and to glorify him. If you can remain faithful through the trials, if you can maintain your integrity, if you can fall on him and not fall apart, then God can use the trials and the hardships of life to build you and to glorify him. As I said already, if Joseph would have quit or got mad or got bitter, it would have short-circuited what God was doing. Any of those steps along the way, if he would have just threw up his hands and quit, would the story have worked out the same way? Um, another lesson from this is when we're enslaved or in prison, it is hard to see what God is doing. You think Joseph ever just looked up to the heavens and said, God, I have no clue if you're anywhere even around this. I have no idea how you could ever be in this whenever I'm in this circumstance. Whenever these things are going on in my life, how could you be anywhere in this, God? How can you do this? How can you work it together for good? You ever quote Romans 8, 28 and say, we know you work all things together for good, but... How can you do anything with this, God? Another lesson, people will forget you and they will let you down, but God won't. Stay faithful, keep trusting him. Uh, another lesson from him, your mistreatment or hard times 
don't entitle you to misbehave. And where that comes from is Joseph's little situation with Potiphar's wife. I don't think it would have been a temptation if she was ugly. I think Potiphar's wife was a good-looking woman. And he could say, Potiphar has mistreated me. I have managed all of his household. I have done all these things that even he can't do. Surely I deserve this. Right? But our situations, our struggles, don't entitle us to sin. Uh, we also find from him that sin affects more than just you, and it ultimately is against God. That was Joseph's concern. He says, if I do this, I'm sinning against my God. Uh, something that we've already looked at quite a bit, but I've got written down here, I'll go ahead and read, that it may take years for God to work out the things that he has planned for your life, and you won't see it if you quit. So 13 years from being sold to, to standing before Pharaoh, and at least 20 from being sold to standing before his brothers. And so that gives us another thing that he can that we can learn from this. God can avenge those who do us wrong better than we ever can ourselves. After all that Joseph had been through, do you realize him being second in command? Potiphar's wife was bowing to him. Potiphar was bowing to him. The jailer was bowing to him. And all of his brothers were bowing to him. If Joseph had tried to avenge himself, if he had tried to get back at Potiphar or Potiphar's wife or his brothers or any of the rest of them, could he have worked it together the way that it did any way near what God did? And that's why he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. God has a much better way. You might look at it and say, but God takes too long. He might take a long time. Took 20 years for Joseph, right? But whenever God takes care of it, he works it out better than we ever can. And the very last thing that I want to look at here is God does big things while we're being faithful. In the entire story of Joseph, did Joseph intentionally do anything whatsoever throughout this entire thing to bring him to the place he ended up at? Joseph, I have a 10-year plan. 10 years from now, I'm going to be sitting up there next to that fella. Was he scheming and dreaming and planning? Well, he was dreaming, but was he planning all this out and trying to make it happen? Was he intentional about any of it? Every single day, Joseph got up and he did right. Every single day, he was faithful and he was serving God. And it took one day after another day after another day. And God put all of those days of his faithfulness together, put the right situations in front of him, put the right circumstances in his life. And at the end of it all, Joseph was sitting beside a Pharaoh, looking around and saying, how did that ever happen? Right? And so we look at our Christian life and say, what do I have to do to get up there? What do I have to do to make this happen? What do I have to do to accomplish that? And we look at goals and we look at steps and we think that we have to do all these big things when in reality, the Bible says that it's required of a steward, that's what we are, that a man be found faithful. It tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please him, right? And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So what is our job as Christians? How do we see God work in us and through us and accomplish great things? Is it that we set out or that we desire to accomplish great things? Is that we are faithful and we follow him one day after another day after another day, realizing he is God and we are not. He's in charge. He's the one that's putting the puzzle together. He's the one that's writing the story. He's the one weaving the tapestry. Whatever picture or illustration you want, He's the one that's doing it. And as we're faithful to him, as we're living by his principles, as we are just taking one day at a time saying, I don't know how God can bring anything good from this situation, but I'm trusting him to work through it and work it out. 
I don't know how God can take me from where I'm at now and make something beautiful out of it, but I'm trusting him to do it. I don't know how God can bring me out of this pit that I'm currently in, deliver me from this prison, pull me out of this slavery. I don't know how he can do it, but whatever he's going to do, I'm still going to be faithful and I'm going to let him work it together day by day by day. And so if you will read through Joseph's life with that perspective and say, what was it that Joseph did? What was it that made the difference in his life? He was faithful and he kept serving God no matter what situation he was in. And God worked it together for good. Right? So with that being said, does anyone have any anything to add? Any questions? Any comments? In case you can't tell, I like Joseph's life. I like the story of Joseph. It's been an encouragement to me. I hope it has been to you. And nothing else. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the, the many stories that you've given us in it, Lord. They're more than stories. They're real life accounts. And Lord, they illustrate so many great and wonderful truths for us. And Lord, just help us as we, we look at Joseph and the things that you did in his life. Lord, help us to realize it was you that did it. And Lord, that it was him living day by day, faithfully, consistently, and seeking after you, and, and you did the work in his life. And Lord, help us to uh, be loving as he was, forgiving as he was, help us to live in a way that brings you glory and uh, points folks to you, Lord. And Lord, we thank you so much for all that you do. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.